Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Rebecca, Assistant Editor at Prospect. Today we're talking to historian and writer Stella Dadzi about her new book, A Kick in the Belly, Women, Slavery and Activism. Stella is a founding member of the Organization of Women of African and Asian Descent and also co-wrote The Heart of Race, Black Women's Lives in Britain with Beverly Bryan and Suzanne Scaife. A Kick in the Belly looks at the lives of enslaved women in the Caribbean foregrounding not only their lived experiences, but also the many ways in which they resisted and asserted their sense of self. Stella, thanks for joining us. You begin the book by remembering your history classes as a nine-year-old and a teacher that is known as the Toad. So how did the Toad teach history? Well, I guess um, it was a very white male imperialist narrative although I wouldn't have been able to describe it like that when I was um, nine years old. Um, it was a history of glorious white conquest and as I say in the book there was no sign of anyone who looked remotely like me. So, yeah, pretty much the history that many of us were taught, I would suspect, um, which pays little deference to the experience of those who were on the receiving end of, of, of uh, uh, European encroachment or British colonial conquest. And a narrative that very much emphasised the glory and the achievement of those who were the perpetrators. And you were still drawn to studying history in spite of these unsatisfying narratives. Um, what drew you to the study of history? I think um, initially it would have been just a response that I think was pretty typical of people of my generation, really, um, as the messages began to reach us from across the pond, messages about civil rights, messages about black liberation many of us became interested in what was referred to as, as black history. And in my own case, I sought texts out 
I was working with groups at the time who quite often had study groups at the centre of their activities. We, we, we sat down, we looked at books, we dissected them, tried to make sense of them. And my interest and, and love of history grew from there, really. But I was very much a self-taught historian. And as I say in the book, I, I, I went to study history at MA level at SOAS, literally with a history O level under my belt. And it was in university that you found a kind of different sort of unsatisfactory approach where you write, you were almost encouraged to be distracted by abstract, clever theories. Yeah, um, it's not so much what was taught. I think obviously, you know, when you leap from O level to MA, there is going to be a, a, a disconnect. But what struck me, I think, was the, the language used, the sort of mystification involved in the teaching, not just of history, but I suspect any subject. It is partly just one of the rituals of academia, one of the ways that they establish whether you're a member of the club or not, whether you can buy into that language and, and that approach. I myself was far more interested in oral history and I was particularly struck by how how little the history that was being taught um, connected to our lived experience as students. Um, now that's a process that starts as I said before in the classroom, in the school classroom, but when you study history at that level it becomes a, a, a frustration I think I, I was recalling when I was thinking about your your, your question Rebecca I was recalling an incident mm -hmm. um, where one of the lecturers I think we, you know I did an area studies degree so I looked at three different areas and one area was labor and slavery and labor oppression in the new world which was all about slavery and enslavement and another area was pre-colonial Africa and one of our lecturers in, in that particular area mentioned um, Marcus Garvey um, and, and actually looked at us and said, you do know who he is, don't you? And I remember, you know, th those of us who were of African origin, we just doubled over. It was just like, how could she even think that we wouldn't if she had any connection with the popular culture that revered Garvey, you know, through reggae music and through those other experiences? So I suppose... For me, yeah, there was just this disconnect between the people I was being taught about or the lands I was being taught about and the people that I knew from my family and from my, from my own travels. And speaking of oral traditions and, and kind of telling stories that connect to people, um, let's talk about how you researched A Kick in the Belly. So there's a bit of travel um, in your writing and you also cite quite a lot of first-hand accounts. So how did you go about researching and finding material for the book? Well, as I said, it, it began as an MA dissertation, really, where I was looking, trying to seek out the stories of women, uh, specifically women of Jamaican um, origin. And um, I soon discovered a whole canon of work um, not easily available or accessible to people who weren't in academia, but... Um, certainly in terms of my own interest, um, um, quite a significant number of historians like Lucille Maturin Mayer, Barbara Bush, um, Olive Senior, Hilary Beckles, um, 
Edward Camel, Braithwaite, you know, there's, there's quite a number of them who'd already begun to delve into that story. So um, it wasn't difficult really to, to find that stuff once you knew where to look. Um, in terms of the actual book itself, you know, we're fast forwarding now 30, 35 years. And um, over that time, obviously I've collected material I've, as you say, travelled to Ghana, where I'm from, so I mean it wasn't a specific, you know, visit to, to research a book, it was just one of the experiences I've had, um, visiting those, those slave fortresses. And, um, yes, you know, I was able to build on that original research, revisit some of the primary texts through um, going to the British Library and to Kew and various other places, and simply just delve into those areas that, that seem to me worthy of expansion, both geographically in terms of beyond Jamaica and, and also looking at what happened on the African coast, um, but also just in terms of, you know, the areas of interest that I had and wanted to explore. And your book focuses on the agency and power um, of the enslaved women. Um, that they had during the age. How had they been written about previously and why was it important for you to select this focus? Well, I'll start with your second question first. It was important to select it because so often enslavement is taught as a story of victimhood. And you, you see a reaction to that, both in terms of the way some children dislike being taught about slavery um, as if it's the only thing that ever happened to people of African origin um, and also just in terms of the the narrative itself I mean it is very easy to turn it into a, a narrative about victimhood so one of the challenges of writing the book I think was to find a way to emphasize that it wasn't just that and that just as our stories that we, we learn about, for example, the Holocaust, um, allow us to focus on the bravery and the courage of young people like Anne Frank or people who survived the death camps, um, it seemed important to me to put the same spin on, on the story and to turn it or turn the focus onto the courage and resilience of those who survived that horrendous experience. Now your first question was about agency and um, how they've been written about previously. I think that where you do encounter enslaved women, whether it's through Hollywood, you know, Gone with the Wind or um, Amistad or any of the the, the, the movies that we can we can identify that have been fed to us over the years, even even the TV um, uh, series Roots. Um, a, it tends to be a very African American narrative, and B, you end up with a very limited number of stereotypes actually of of, of black women. One is a sort of broad backed -back matriarch who 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 can cope with anything that's thrown with her because of her African ancestry or something to do with how she's programmed. And um, the other is the sort of sexual temptress, the what's the word I'm looking for, the virago, you know, mm -hmm. who, who um, lured the innocent white male 
into a state of fallen grace. Um, and that actually is a stereotype that survived fairly unscathed into the 21st century. If you look at um, current media images of black women, large bottom, the um, pouting lips, um, the, the way black women tend to be only of interest if they're on stage or flouting fashion or gyrating their hips, um, then you see exactly what I mean. So those stereotypes, again, tend to have been fed to us through the lens of, of racism and misogyny. And that raises the whole question of where the original stories come from. They come primarily from white male contemporaries who wrote diaries, letters, um, reports back to their colonial masters, etc., etc., or kept plantation records, punishment records, court records, all of those things. And again, the way black women are seen is 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 through through their white male gaze. So um, yes, to come back to it, you know, by by upending that story and saying, look, there are other ways of seeing these women. Um, I think it, it puts a new slant on that story. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of first-hand accounts or who gets to you know, be accounted in history, there's some really powerful testimony throughout the book from um, a woman called Mary Prince. Uh, you spotlight several quite incredible individual women in the book. Um, can you tell us a few of the incredible women that you spotlight and what, how they challenged these accounts of submissiveness? Okay, well, I think um, the best way to answer your question, Rebecca, would be to start on the African continent, because quite often enslaved women are first encountered naked and on, on board ship. And of course, the women who did survive the Middle Passage um, came from somewhere. They had a culture. Um, even if they were quite young, they would probably have gone through some form of initiation, which would have prepared them for womanhood or given them a sense of what a woman, woman's role was. So I think women like Anna and Zinga, for example, who as I describe in the book, was a flea in the Portuguese ear for something like 35 years throughout her reign. She was a queen. The story is told of when she met one of the Portuguese um, governors um, at, who expected her to stand before him. She um, instructed one of her retinue of servants to kneel on his hands and knees and form a chair for her. She was very imperious and she was also um, an amazingly skilled warrior and her tactical guerrilla warfare ensured not only her survival throughout that period but actual, actually her ability to evade um, and, and resist encroachment. So women like her, um, although their names haven't survived in the numbers that we would like, there are evidence of women like her across the African continent. And I know from my own Ghanaian culture that that role of the Ashanti 
warrior priestess who was both a spiritual leader but also a tactical uh, military leader is duplicated across the continent. So um, when we move into the experience of women who were enslaved and living on the plantations, it's quite important to recognise that that spirit of resistance would have rubbed off in all kinds of ways. And one remarkable example is Nanny of the Maroons, who, mm. um, who was a, 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 described as a saltwater Negro. In other words, she was one of those people who had come over on the ship. She hadn't been born into slavery. And she escaped um, quite early on in her enslavement by the, by the look of things. Uh, with two of her brothers and went on to lead one of the um, enclaves of Maroons up in the, the, the Blue Mountains. Now, Nanny has survived in the memory, um, in the Jamaican memory, and um, to this day she's featured on, on the $500 note. She's, she's, um, uh, her, her grave still survives. And um, one of the things that um, she's renowned for was again her, her tactical and spiritual leadership to the point where the European militia were unable to defeat her and to repress her and were ultimately forced to sign a treaty with her and to award her land. So women like that, I think they stand for or they must stand in for the many voiceless invisible women who would have existed throughout those 400 years of enslavement, if you take, you know, every country in the Americas that um, uh, indulged in it. And um, unfortunately, as I say, their names haven't survived, but we know they existed. And we know that Nanny was one, 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 one example of many, probably. Yeah. And speaking of sort of one example among many, you have these exceptional individual case stories, but you also point to the ways in which resistance was seen in smaller or everyday actions of refusing the imperative to give birth. How did you balance these wide ranging individual stories that happen at such a macro level? I don't think it was so much a question of balancing them. I think it was a sense of recognizing that there was a continuity in their actions and that everything from small subversive acts that took place perhaps um, at the kitchen stove or while serving their masters and mistresses at the table or dusting their artifacts or reading over the shoulder um, and teaching themselves to read, you know, all those small subversive acts were hugely significant. And um, they see very gently, but obviously into the acts of women who down tools and said absolutely no way i don't care what they do to me i have nothing to lose but my chains and were prepared to take up arms and risk the most horrendous tortures and indeed execution in order to fight for their freedom um, they're part of the same story Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So let's turn to Britain today. There's still often an attitude that the slave trade was an American affliction, but even though that is being increasingly challenged, um, what are the shifts you've seen on the conversation on race in this country? I guess there is a greater articulacy. People have a wider vocabulary with which to talk about race. There's also a much greater visibility, not just in the media, but in social media terms and in terms of the roles that we see black people presented to us in the recent controversy over the supermarket ads, Christmas ads, I think is a case in point where you've actually had a backlash from people who were offended by the idea of black people simply presented to them as a normal, ordinary family. We're very accustomed, are we not, um, throughout history to seeing us presented in, in a very narrow, limited number of ways, usually associated with sexuality or criminality or sport. So um, that in itself, I think, is, is a significant uh, and noticeable change. Now, whether that means that the bedrock of racism, the actual fundamental um, assumptions and power structures that... Um, ensure its survival, whether those have been fundamentally shaken, I'm not entirely sure. I lived through civil rights in the 60s, so to see Black Lives Matter rise up, you know, with such force and fury during the pandemic wasn't necessarily something new for me and for people of my generation. We have seen this happen before. And that neurotic focus on all things black that lasts until the next flavour of the month comes along. So that's a more cynical response to your answer. And I think it depends what day you ask me <laughs> how I'm going to respond to that. On a more positive front, particularly since 2018, when The Heart of the Race was republished as a feminist classic after 35 years. And we were out there, there was no pandemic, so we're actually meeting 
the young women, the new generation of young women who were engaging with that book, I was absolutely inspired by the energy and the intelligence and the resilience of some of the young women that I met, that we met, I should say, um, absolutely heartening. Now, obviously a lot has happened in those two years and COVID has kind of put the dampener on everything and, and I personally find it hard to envisage a world in which activism is restricted to Zoom. I just can't get my head around that and I doubt I ever will. And I do hope and long for a time when people will be able to demonstrate safely on the streets again, meet together in parliamentary contexts and argue again and do all the things that we identify as part of our democratic process. I really do hope that that will resurge. Whether it will or not, I think remains to be seen. Yeah. But um, I think it would be dishonest to say there have been no shifts. Clearly there are visible shifts. And I was talking to a woman just recently on another interview who was mentioning the fact that her father, who'd come over as part of the Windrush generation and had aspirations to be a novelist that were never realised, how happy he would be to see her young daughter who at the age of, I think, six or seven, was talking about writing her first novel. That's the quantum shift. It's a shift up here. It's a shift away from mental colonization. It's a shift away from that sense that society and economics determine your prospects rather than your own ambition. Now, I've always resisted that. Because to me, that's the kind of a, a version of Norman Tebbit's Get On Your Bike. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that anybody can rise to the top simply if they have the, the wherewithal and the, the ambition to do so. I think it's only easy to pull up your bootstraps if you have the boots. And that um, for many people um, trapped in poverty, trapped on high-rise housing estates like Grenfell and others, trapped in low-paying uh, menial jobs or in the gig economy where they, you know, have no rights as workers. Um, it, I think for those, um, it's, it's, it would be hard to say that their lives have changed significantly, apart from the sort of material trappings, from the prospects of, 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 you know, generations who came before them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we are seeing now a sense that Zoom, Zoom activism or Zoom gathering can only do so much. And it is really about being in the room with other people um, and being in the streets and together and, and sort of sharing a physical presence yeah more people of my generation realize there's a limit to just being behind the screen yeah and i mean basically what we're seeing is a government that gets away with whatever it likes to do because there's no effective opposition mm -hmm. absolutely no effective opposition and i i think they're having a field day personally i think they're really having a field day you know from trump's refusal to to concede to 
Boris Johnson's behaviour around Brexit. Yeah. Um, and on that note, to always be vigilant and commit to your neighbours and community. Thank you very much, Stella Dadzi. And that's all from us. Thank you very much for joining us. And we'll be back next week. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next week.